Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You know, occasionally I take a break from media, television, radio. I'm not a great television watcher. When I do listen to the radio, I'll listen to anybody talk about anything, anytime. But sometimes I take a break from all of that, take a break from the computer and, and all of the rest, and I, I recommend it. In fact, I highly recommend it to you. It helps you to keep your balance if you'll do that once in a while, and it lets you hear the quieter voices for a change. But I take a break usually, most specifically, from the news. I stop listening to the news. I stop reading the newspapers and the magazines and all of the rest. I take a break specifically from the news. I've noticed, though, when I take a break of a week or sometimes two weeks, a funny thing, when I come back to it, those people are talking about the same things they were when I left, and they haven't solved anything. And so I don't feel too badly when I take a break sometimes. But this week has been different. This week I have listened and I have read and I have paid very close attention to some very awful developments that we're all aware of. You don't need me to tick them off for you. And as I consumed those awful stories that were happening all around us, some of them too close, really, for comfort, I thought of the Apostle Paul one time. He was facing some awful times himself. And he said, in the last days, difficult times will come. Some of our Bibles say, in the last days, perilous times will come. A lot of people are convinced that those long-anticipated last days are here now, that we're living in the last days now. For me, I really don't know. My mind is not subtle enough to sift through all of that, I guess. I do know that every generation of believers since Christ have thought that theirs was the worst and theirs was possibly the last day's generation. I do know that. I do also know that even though that's the case, one of these days it will be true and one generation will be the last day's generation. I know that for a fact as well. One day it will be the case. But I really don't know if these are the last days. There are some people on television that seem to think so, and I'm not sure really how they know either. But I do know that though I don't know it's the last days, I do know the other part of what Paul had to say is true. These are difficult days. That I do know. These are perilous times. These are difficult days. I know that. And I know that people are worried, and I know that People are afraid, and there's no shortage of anxiety. I know that. And I know that peace is in short supply. I know that too. And to tell you the truth, that's what concerns me. It concerns me that some of you are struggling with fear, and you're having trouble sensing peace today because of things that have happened. Again, the Bible talks about times when everybody will say, peace, peace. They'll talk it. But there is no peace. Do you realize over 4,000 years of recorded history, there are only 286 of those 4,000 plus years 
that were years of peace on this planet? Do you realize that there, in that same space of time, there have been 14,351 wars? There have been 8,000 peace treaties made and 8,000 peace treaties broken. In the past three centuries alone, there have been 289 wars in Europe alone, let alone the rest of the world. If you figured up just the cost in property damage alone that's been caused by all of the wars of all of history, you would be able with that money that was wasted in all of those wars, you would be able with that money to put a a gold belt around the planet, entirely around the planet, that would be almost 93 miles wide and 33 feet deep, solid gold. The number of lives that have been lost in those same wars would make you choke and it would ruin your day, so I'll pass on that. But you know as well as I do that it still continues today. It continues in the streets of Chicago. And a couple of weeks ago, the streets of Paris. And in the streets of our own city, it continues. And out our own back door in San Bernardino. And and as we ramp up to another election season, both parties are crying peace. But there is no peace. So I'm very sorry that... Some of you are anxious, and recent events have made you so. So I want to talk to you about peace today and about the Prince of Peace. If I can get you to turn your attention toward him, I think that our peace that has largely evaporated over the last week or so, it just might return. There's a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, that says... For a child will be born to us, a little baby will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, listen, Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace. Now before I was a Christian and even after I started to follow Christ, I sometimes play a little game when I read something like that in the Word. It's a game that I call, yes, but what about? And when I read that we're going to be given one who's called the Prince of Peace, I think about another verse and I play that game, yes, but what about? Because in Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus is speaking and he says this, the Prince of Peace says this, do not think In other words, do not conclude. If you would conclude this way, you would be wrong. Do not conclude that I will bring peace on the earth. That's said by the Prince of Peace. When I read that, do not think that I will bring peace on the earth, it makes me think of an old man by the name of Simeon who almost lived night and day in the old temple. And when Jesus was brought by his parents just a few days old, For his very first visit into the temple, there was old Simeon, and he dashes out of the shadows, and he scoops up the child because he has been promised by God that he will not die, he will not see his mortal death until he sees the promised child, the Prince of Peace. 
and he, he leaps in his heart when he sees it. The child's presence resonates with him, and he scoops that child up away from the, the hands of his loving and now astonished parents. This old man is holding the baby. And among the things that he says to that child and to the parents, he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many. The Prince of Peace will bring about the fall of many. The Prince of Peace who himself admits, I don't bring peace on the earth. I'm not going to bring you political peace. I'm not going to bring you military peace. I'm not going to bring you national security kind of peace. What kind of prince of peace is this anyway? Revisit Bethlehem with me. Let's go back there. It's the, the place of the incarnation. And what a word, what a concept that is. It comes from the Latin word carne, which means to make flesh, to make meat. If you're a Spanish speaker, you recognize a word in there. If you remember your high school biology, you remember the herbivores, the animals that eat plants, we like them, and the carnivores, the ones who eat meat, and they'll eat you too. And so you see the word in carnivore, incarnation. We see it in words like carnal, to act in a fleshly way, and it means to take on flesh. And there's scandal here when you start talking about the incarnation, God becoming man, God taking on flesh. There's scandal here. Of course, there's the scandal of a young girl and her older fiancé. But there's a greater scandal involved in the incarnation, and that, that's when the creator, the engineer, the maker, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the, the one who makes trillion-ton mountains, and he can also make the tiniest corpuscle that is pulsing through your blood and veins right now. The, the one who knows how to hang vast planets and suns into nothing. That same one became, listen, became one of us. He became one of us. There's a, there's a scandal there. And Muslims are very happy to point out the scandal. God becomes a person? That's blasphemy. And the skeptic will sneer at the same thing. God becomes a man? How could that be? But it's at the heart of our faith. The scandal that God became one of us, it's at the heart of our faith. Now look, here it comes. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke because the story is told well there, told so well there that we Look at it often. And we think about it, and we've even heard a bit of it today. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the whole world, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. I told you the whole world. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, and that was their home place, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and with child. There we've got their scandal. 
And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Listen, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. There it is. There's the story above every story. His peace. His peace is for those who want it. You see what the word says? Peace. Peace for those with whom God is pleased. Peace. His peace is for those who want it. More, more properly, for those who want him. With whom he is pleased, that's what the word says. On whom his favor, his grace rests. How, how's that for a description of what has happened to us as we've come to Christ? We're the people on whom his favor rests, the ones with whom he is pleased. You see, it pleases God when we're in a right relationship with him. Did you know that? It pleases him. And when we aren't running from him, it pleases him. When we're not like our first parents, we're running away and hiding because we've got wrong ideas about him. It pleases him when we turn around, when we stop running from God and start running toward him. He is pleased. He is supremely pleased. And Then we're in a place when he's pleased. When we're running toward him, then we are in a place where he can shower us with his attention, which he's always wanted to do. Blessings is what we call it. And he can do what he longs to do. And that show us his favor. And so every day then becomes another day for him to show his grace and his goodness. No wonder he's pleased when that happens. No wonder. When we draw near to him and we allow him to do what he wants to do, and that's lavish us and bless us, he's pleased. Read that verse again. Read it again. See what he says. With whom he is pleased. On whom his favor rests. He gives peace. Peace. You know, a lot of things can steal our peace. And you don't need me to list those for you, you know what things steal your peace. This scene that we're talking about here in Bethlehem, we, we put it to song and it's in a Christmas carol. It's so peaceful, we even sing it. Sleep in heavenly peace. But that heavenly peace is going to be marred by the power of a power-hungry king who, who wants to eliminate any possible takeovers of his throne. This, this king has already murdered his own son, and now he hears about a new kind of king who's born in Bethlehem, and he sends soldiers to slaughter all the babies in hopes of getting that one youngest brand new king out of the way. And so there's the slaughter, and there's death that results. Death. Dying. The fear of dying. 
I would imagine it steals the peace of more people than just about anything else. The fear of dying, the thought of dying, can steal our peace. That's why it's amazing that there are actually people in this room who aren't afraid of dying. That's because they know a little bit about what Psalm 23 is talking about when it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You're with me, and so I'm not afraid. My peace isn't rocked. I keep it. I maintain it, even though I walk through something as ugly as that. There are people that actually aren't afraid. And there are some in this room that really aren't afraid. David was the king of Israel. When Israel was at its highest and best, he stretched from sea to sea. It was a, an important kingdom in the Middle East under David. David, as the king, his word was law. And though David's word was law, he made mistakes that every parent makes. He had a favorite. His favorite was his youngest child. And on that youngest favorite child, he lavished all of his attention and all of the neglect that he had applied to his older children. He reversed it in this child. And he lavished everything he could on that child. He loved that child, but that child got sick. And so David called in the best medical minds to do all they could do. And they did all they could do, but the child only got worse. And that's when David made another mistake, a mistake that's as common as the first one and maybe more common, and I'll bet you've made it too. When we get into trouble, we think about ways to get out of trouble and we talk to our friends and we try and line up solutions and we engineer all kinds of schemes. How am I going to get myself out of this mess? And the last thing we do is what? Pray. It should be the first. But David tried everything he could think of to try and all the good medical advice that money could buy. He tried it all and then he prayed but it was an extraordinary case. It was going to take extraordinary prayer. So he went in to the makeshift temple that at that point still had a dirt floor. And he threw himself, the king of Israel, threw himself in the dirt. And he began to pray like he had never prayed before that God would heal his boy and raise him up. And the hours clicked by and the advisors are wondering, when is he going to stop? He had made a vow that he would not eat or drink anything and he would not get up until God healed his boy and they watched as he dug his fingers into the soil, as he begged God to heal his sick little boy. He went into another day, and another day, and the advisors began to ask each other, what's going to happen? Because you see, they were monitoring the child. What's going to happen if and when that child dies? Who will tell the king? And their fear was, if the king doesn't like the message, he may kill the messenger. He went into six days, and then on the seventh day, it happened. The child died. And finally, one of the advisors took the job, and he went in, and he shook the king as he still lay on the floor, praying like he had never prayed before. And he said, King, it's over. Your boy is gone. And then he stepped back. The king got up, and dusted himself off, and went into his private quarters of his palace. And there he changed and bathed and ordered up a meal, and he sat down to dinner. And as he finished the dinner, that same advisor came to him and begged for an audience, please, a question, king. And he was granted a question, and his question was this. While your boy was alive, you spared no expense and no trouble. 
You brought in the best medical minds. You did everything you could think of to do. And then you prayed like you've never prayed before. But now that the child is gone, you get up and you change and bathe and go on with life. Huh? How can you do that? The king said a very profound thing. He said, it's true. While the child was here, I did everything I could to keep him here. But now that the child is gone, I know that I cannot bring him back. But I can live in such a way that I will see him again. And then, sometime after that, the great king David, having learned from life experience, sat down and wrote that 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You're with me. See, David learned that the Lord is with him, even though he walks through a very dark valley. I may uh, be saying that the story of peace on earth is one that I've heard before. Maybe you're saying that. Who doesn't know the Christmas story? After all, Charlie Brown's friend Linus reads it to us every year, right? So who doesn't know about the Bethlehem story and the Prince of Peace? But let me show you something that you may never have thought about. You may never have thought about the reality that we have significance before God without any strings attached. I'm finishing up a book called Embracing Obscurity. I wish I could tell you who wrote it. I don't know. Because the person in keeping with the title, Embracing Obscurity, is anonymous. They've requested that their name not be put on the book, so we don't know who wrote it. But whoever this person is, he or she says this. Significance without strings. Value that's not contingent on what you do or accomplish, but entirely dependent on what He has done in creating you. You see, you're significant to God, and He has no strings attached to it. It has nothing to do with what you've done, as this author says here. Value that's not contingent on what you do or accomplish, but entirely dependent on what He has done in creating you, redeeming you, calling you, leading you. God calls you by name. In fact, He knows everything about you. He watches your every move. He cares to know every inconsequential thought that you have throughout the day. He knows you so well, He can tell what you're going to say even before you say it. And when you need someone to lead you, he's on up ahead. And when you need someone to get your back, he's right behind you. No matter how far you wander, he's right beside you. He can't get enough of blessing you, guiding you, letting his light shine on you. If God were a scrapbooker, he'd have books and books for every memory of your life from the moment you were conceived till the day you die and beyond. And he thinks about you, listen, more often than you could ever count throughout the day. We're significant to him. Not because of what we can do for Him or have done for Him, but because of who He is and what He's done for us. And that's why you can know peace. Because you're significant to God. No strings attached. You're significant to God. So when the fear over what's happening in Paris or San Bernardino or the next place, wherever that is, 
When the fear that comes over you because of what's happening in your home or on the job or in your body, when that fear starts to rise, give Christ permission to remind you, hey, you're with me. I'm thinking of you. You're significant to him, you see, and there aren't any strings attached to that. There was a man of means who had a vision, an idea. He wanted a masterpiece to be created that would convey peace. He felt like that would do a lot of people a whole lot of good. If somebody could capture on a canvas peace. And so he opened it up, a contest of sorts, and there were many, many submissions by great artists that painted peace. One artist painted a scene with a a pond in the foreground that was still, not a ripple on it. It was literally like glass and smooth, and behind it there was a meadow There were sheep grazing in it that were not bothered by any predator or anybody. It was a perfect picture of peace on a beautiful sunlit day. Another artist, they they gathered all the paintings together and were unveiling them. And another one that was unveiled was a mountain scene of these snow-covered peaks. They were completely quilted with this light-looking snow. And as you looked at it, you got the sense, people who come from snow country will know what this is about. When it snows heavy, everything is quiet because the noise is muffled. And as you looked at that picture of peace in those mountains, all the extra sounds that get in our way just died away. There were some great pictures that day. But there was one left to be unveiled. It was the one that was judged by the man who had the idea to be the best picture of peace. And it was center stage as he unveiled it to the crowd that was waiting to see what was the best depiction of peace. They were puzzled when they saw it was a great raging waterfall, a stream that was coming down these huge boulders and it was crashing and moving and diverting and and it was spraying and it was violent. And, And you could almost feel the cold chill and the rush of the air as it's pushed back by this violent water falling. They had to look close. But right at the bottom of the waterfall, there was a thin little tree that had managed to stay, and and it had a branch that was going out and almost touching the water. And at the very end of that branch, in the the last fork of the last branch, there was a, a nest. And in that nest, there was a mother bird covering her eggs. And she was asleep, her eyes were closed, and she was at peace. She was taking care of her little ones. That was peace. Won the contest because it told a story that we know well enough. The best kind of peace comes in the middle of chaos, doesn't it? And the only one that can bring lasting peace in the middle of all the turmoil that is our life and our world is Christ, the Prince of Peace. 
the Prince of Peace. So the peace of a quiet conscience, the peace of a, of a restful mind. Think about it. The peace of a hopeful heart. The peace of a surrendered will. The peace of a loving relationship with a loving God. Those are all yours because of Christ. There's just something I want to send home with you. It's the very end of a, a troubling letter that Paul wrote to a group of friends. We've labeled it 2 Thessalonians, and at the very end of that letter, the verse called verse 16, chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, it says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself, the Lord of peace himself, continually grant you peace in every circumstance. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. I want you to stand with me. And I want us to go home with peace. In spite of what happens around us in our world, our peace need not be rattled. And we can take from his hand what he offers here, the Lord of peace grant you peace. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heart and your head. And I want us to wait for just a moment before the Lord of Peace, the Prince of Peace. And I want us to ask Him to restore our peace. As I said, the thing that disturbs me about all of the things that swirl around us is that for some of you, you've been robbed of your peace. Let the Lord restore that today. May the Lord of peace grant you peace. And so, Lord, we approach you now and ask you to do what nobody else can do, what no counselor, what no politician, what no leader, what no police force, what nobody can do. Give us peace. Give us a peace that's beyond comprehension. Lord, we want the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace himself. We want it to guard our hearts and our minds. We want it to be reality, Lord. And may we know that that peace is available to us because we are significant to you. Not because we've done anything or given you anything but because of who you are. We belong to you. And we rejoice in that and we thank you and love you and pray in your matchless name. Give us peace, Lord. Give us peace. And all God's people said amen, amen. and amen. Hey, turn around and tell somebody you love them. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.